Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, does the width of a bullet determine twist rate the same as the length of the bullet? Or does it have any relationship at all? Well, let's find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone. One of my patrons recently asked this. His name is Race, and he said, Hey, Ron, I have a question about twist rate. Does the width of a bullet make a difference on how fast you need to twist it to stabilize? Like, would a 40 caliber bullet that's one inch long and a 25 caliber bullet that's one inch long need the same twist rate? Thanks for everything you do. I never met my grandfathers and listening to you almost makes me feel like I have one again. Thanks. Well, yeah, my pleasure, Ray's. Thanks for that fine compliment. Happy to be your grandpa here. (laughs) But answering his question, I wrote right back and said, hey, good question, Ray's. The best way to understand this is by thinking proportionately of length and width or caliber. Regardless of your caliber, it is increased length that requires increased twist to stabilize simply because more of the bullet mass and its center of gravity is farther from its base. This means that its long nose is more easily disrupted by tiny imbalances such as a bit more air drag on one side than the other or a trifle more weight on one side or the other. So regardless how wide the bullet is, the longer it is, the faster it must spin to overcome its propensity to yaw and tumble. As you can easily imagine, a perfect sphere doesn't yaw and tumble because the center of mass is the center of gravity. Not so when you stretch that ball into an elongated projectile. The more you stretch out the mass, a longer bullet regardless of caliber, the faster you need to spin it to keep it from tumbling. Now, getting back to proportionality, a 40 caliber bullet an inch long is closer to the sphere shape than is a 25 caliber bullet an inch long. The 25 is much more pronounced elongated projectile. Thus, it would require more spin, a faster twist rate to stabilize. Does that make sense? You could also think of a football shape versus a softball shape. 
which needs to spin more to fly true. So I hope that answered it for you, Ray's. Uh, but that brought to my mind some other questions I've been getting about twist rate. So a corollary question that is often uh, posted by some patrons is asking about twist rate goes like this. Does increasing twist rate decrease muzzle velocity? And my answer to that one is yes, but not appreciably because not enough to worry about, even with shots as far as a thousand yards. Now, here's what's going on. A given quantity and type of powder pushes a bullet of a given weight to a certain velocity at the muzzle. Forcing this bullet into rifling grooves that grip it and spin it converts some of that linear velocity and energy into rotational velocity and energy. The faster the twist rate, like one in eight inches rather than one in 12, the more of the available gas energy is taken from linear velocity to advance the spin or rotational velocity. But how much? That varies depending on your bullet's length, weight, perhaps its caliber, but it can be as minimal as 1.25 feet per second per inch of differing twist rate, perhaps as much as 5 feet per second per inch. So, Using a two feet per second difference per inch and going from a 112 slow twist to a one and eight fast twist would be two feet per second linear velocity loss times four, four inches for a total of eight feet per second lost in muscle velocity. Typical factory cartridges can vary in muzzle velocity 25 feet per second to as much as 100 feet per second. So an eight foot per second loss is insignificant. Even good quality hand loads can vary 25 to 30 feet per second from cartridge to cartridge. So for a bullet going 3,000 feet per second, the loss of 8 feet per second, insignificant difference. Now a follow-up question to all this might be, what does rotational energy contribute to terminal performance? Is the spinning, churning fan blade trauma from these bullets, particularly those that expand into star-like shapes like some of these copper bullets do? I honestly don't know, but experts say nah. Some folks say yes. Supporters of the 1 in 3 twist 8.6 blackout, for instance, claim that that twist rate with a Barnes TTSX bullet creates dramatically different terminal performance than do more traditional twist rates. Well, one can certainly see the results of torque forces on the extended pedals of a recovered TTSX bullet. Those pedals are literally torqued off to the side with the spin. So there's something going on with spin, whether it ends up being like a, like a high rotating fan blade passing through the animal, like some people say, that is debated because of the velocity with which that bullet transverses the, the subject. So it kind of remains a debate thing, but obviously there's some trauma being done with that spinning bullet. I just don't think it's as much as a high-speed drill with a <laughs> fan blade edges on it would be doing. But it's certainly worth considering, and they seem to see it a lot in that 8.6 blackout. All right, now here are some uh, comments we've gotten on various podcasts and uh, YouTube videos. Uh, here's one from Ron on the 243 burying the 6mm Remington. I did a piece on that, explained how that all happened, and somebody responded to it and said that, uh, must have said something about the 90 grain bullet being a good choice, even though it wasn't appreciated back when the six was a, well, the six millimeter initially was a 243, no, 244 Remington. This all happened in 
1955, Winchester came out with the 308 neck down to 24 for the 243 Winchester. Remington went with the 757 Mauser necked it down to 243, called it the 244 Remington, which I always say was one of the best names for a cartridge. 44 mag, 244, it's just got a, a good Western ring to it. Regardless, it failed pretty much. It was beat out by the 243 even though it was 100 feet per second faster on average. And the reason given for that is that they put a slower twist rate in the 244, so the top end bullet weight was 90 grains, whereas the 243 Winchester had a 1 in 10 twist and they could stabilize a 100 grain bullet. And deer hunters seem to think you'd had to have a 100 grain bullet, I guess. I don't know if the gun writers of the day and age added to that. But it's kind of silly. 10 grains of bullet really doesn't make that much difference. And plenty of deer have been taken with a 90-grain bullet. That all sets up Ron here, who's talking about the 90-grain bullet not being good. And here's what he says. I have seen an awful pile of deer run off after being shot with a 90-grain bullet. It went in and hit the big bone in the shoulder. Then it flew clear to pieces and it never got inside the chest cavity. Now, if you manage to get into the heart and lung area without hitting a bone, it's okay. But if you go through that front leg and then it hits a rib bone, it's not entering the chest cavity whatsoever. Boy, I just can't agree with this one, Ron. I don't know what you've observed, but I think you're you're reading into this a little bit more than you probably should. And that's kind of a common thing with us hunters. We will see a deer get shot by somebody with some cartridge, some bullet, and the deer is not recovered. And then we assume certain things happen. And maybe some of this is fed by what we read, what we hear from other people. But I, I would ask somebody like Ron here, you've seen an awful pile of deer run off after being shot. Really? How many deer have you seen shot with a 90 grain bullet from a six millimeter? And if the deer ran off, how do you know that that bullet hit the big bone and failed to get inside? Uh, you're just assuming a little bit too much here. And this is what I discourage because it's just not good, solid information. I think we really need to recover those animals and do a, a careful examination of what exactly happened because I have taken many deer over the years with six millimeter Remington and 243 Winchester with a variety of bullets, not just 100 grains and 105 grains and 90 grains, but 85 grain, 80 grains, 75 grains, even as light as 58 grains. And I've had great luck with all of them, including a 58 grain varmint bullet with which I struck a good sized buck right on the shoulder. And I, I wasn't trying to hit the shoulder. I was trying to hit it, put it behind, uh, which is really effective. But despite that, that bullet got through. That frangible little varmint bullet got through the shoulder into the chest cavity and terminated that buck really quickly. Um, so I just can't agree with what Ron's saying here. That said, it is probably smartest to go with a heavier um, controlled expansion style bullet um, and not shoot for that shoulder shot. Frangible bullets on the shoulder can be an issue, but I've seen the same thing happen with more typical cup and core bullets. Seen it hit kind of the deer coming at you, quartering, and you hit in front of the shoulder and think you ought to drive right back into the lungs and that bullet slides between that front leg, shoulder, and the ribs and slides on back and never gets into the chest cavity. I've seen it on a brisket shot as well, just like the ship's prowl right there on a deer and that bullet slides around that bone structure, it doesn't get in. So crazy things can happen. That's why it's always, uh, I think, important for us to be careful when we shoot, make sure that deer's in a good position, matching to what our bullet is capable of doing.
All right. Thanks for bringing that up, though, Ron. I think that's important for all of us to really think deeply about this rather than jumping to conclusions. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, here's one from Marvin uh, about a video I did on why the 308 Winchester loses. <laughs> I compared the 308 to the 708 and the 260 Remington, as I often like to do to really expose what's going on ballistically with bullets based on their caliber size and velocities and stuff and their ballistics coefficient numbers. Surprising numbers come out of that. At any rate, this gentleman seems to have disagreed with my conclusions because he says, sorry, Spomer, wrong again. <laughs> hey, Marv, I appreciate that, but could you give me some proof, some evidence? Because I make it a point to do some pretty careful research and get all my numbers straight, all my data straight. I combine it a little bit with my experiences over the decades with hunting, but I'm mainly going with physics because it's a science. It's, it's proven and true and it works and all the rest of it. So when I run those numbers and I give them all to you, showing the differences, and you say I'm wrong, I kind of like to know where I'm wrong because I, if I am wrong, I want to tell guys. Guys, I got it wrong. Uh, erase what I told you because I forgot something and Marvin here straightened me out. But just telling me I'm wrong, that's the equivalent of saying I'm a dummy or calling me a name. And a lot of people like to do that. And I understand the frustration, but it doesn't solve anything, doesn't help anything. So I will invite you, Marvin, to let me know what I got wrong. Take down my data and tell me how I misconstrued it or somehow got it wrong. If you're just a fan of the 308 and it works for you, I have no problem, man. Go for it. I can support you in that use, but I do like to know what my bullets are capable of, what they're doing. And all the data that I've come up with indicates that the 7mm 08 and the 260 Remington can outproduce the 308 in many categories. Maybe you shoot your deer and they die faster with the 308. A lot of people say that, but the numbers don't support it. But who cares about numbers when you're hunting deer and you know, whatever you're using works for you? Go for it. <laughs> all right. This is XXXXXXXXX183. You remember all those X's? Don't call him too many or too few. <laughs> Get all the right X's in there. This is what XXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXX
was not by increasing velocity unless you could stretch your barrel out. So you might pick up uh, a little more performance. That spilled over into uh, smokeless powder, but boy, it, it ended pretty quickly because smokeless powder is like three to four times more powerful per unit than black powder. So we started cutting our barrels back. But back around the turn of the century in 1890s into the 1900s, that's when smokeless powder came into being. Um, and we were sticking to our traditions. It was just a tradition to have a long barrel. But gee whiz, even black powder barrels started getting shorter back in 1804, Lewis and Clark expedition. They knew they were going to be having to haul these things across a wilderness, half a continent, and they didn't want those big clumsy rifle barrels. So they specifically asked for some shorter ones. And they were, I think they were shortened in St. Louis. And that kind of became the standard known as the Hawken rifle uh, with a much shorter barrel. And I think they even took the caliber sizes down a little bit, but that became the mountain man rifle, the famous Hawken rifle. We started shortening things up for convenience, sacrificed a little bit of velocity. But nowadays, of course, we all know we can get all the velocity we need out of a 22 inch barrel when you're shooting something like a 270 or 30 at six. But if you increase your powder volume into say a 300 wind mag or Weatherby mag or any of the big belted magnums, you need a longer barrel to get all your money's worth out of the big powders doses that you're burning down those barrels. So that's why barrels get longer. When the really interesting thing is barrels can be much, much longer than we think without losing velocity. A lot of us think, I included that, you get much past about 28, 30 inches of barrel, and maybe there's so much friction with that bullet being pushed down the barrel that it starts to lose velocity. But studies have shown that you can get out there like 40, 42 inches, maybe even longer, and you're still gaining velocity with these cartridges. So there is a reason to have a long, long barrel that's just not very convenient. All right, that was a good one there. X X X X X X X X. This is somebody from Canada, legal Canadian. This guy's legal. I'm confused. My 375 H and H Magnum shoots a slightly tapered, straight-walled style cartridge. Think of a massive centerfire 22 Magnum. It's not a small neck-down cartridge like you talked about. Is this an April Fool's joke or did the 375 H&H mag undergo some sort of transition I wasn't aware of? Boy, legal Canadian, I'm not sure what you're seeing there, but the videos I do on a 375 H&H magnum show a 375 H&H magnum. I don't have one in front of me. Oh, you do too. I have one in front of me right now. And maybe it's that you don't or didn't fully appreciate the shoulder. It's not much of a shoulder. Uh, and that's why it has a belt on it. It's a belted magnum because it's got a minimal shoulder, but it is a shoulder. The case is fairly tapered up until that shoulder bend, and then the shoulder kicks in. But it's not much of a shoulder, so they thought it might not head space on that shoulder effectively. So they put the belt on the back, and they used that to stop the cartridge from going too far into the chamber. And that's the 375 H&H. So I think you just probably need to take a little closer look at your cartridge and realize that if you step down, uh, even if it's a tapered cartridge, if you have that notch or that step down, that's the bottleneck. It's just not much of one. All right. Angry Sheepdog. Oh, what do you have to talk about here, Angry? I hope you're not mad at me. The one major aspect that Ron is not addressing is why... Which round produces the most hydrostatic shock, which is what drops an animal instantly versus 
exsanguination. Now, there's a word we don't get every week. <laughs> You're going to get bonus points here, angry. <laughs> Let's go back now that I got so interested in exsanguination. He is saying uh, hydrostatic shock drops an animal instantly versus exsanguination, which is hemorrhaging, bleeding out from boring a deep channel. Hydrostatic shock is based on the fluid percussion model. We've got ourselves an engineer here. Water is not compressible. That's true. So it transfers energy very efficiently. That's true. Hydrostatic uh, run equipment and stuff works very well. A ballistic energy wave traveling at sufficient amplitude. I told you this guy was probably, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. A ballistic energy wave traveling at sufficient amplitude will cause instant incapacitation to the central nervous system, brain, and heart. Hydrostatic shock requires three elements, velocity and mass together, which make energy, and surface area of the expanded projectile to round and drive that energy into the target. These three rounds have similar velocity. Oh, this is in reference to a video I did on the 308 compared to the 708 and the 260. I get it now. So these three rounds have similar velocity and energy, but the 308's larger diameter has on a percentage basis much more surface area fully expanded, and thus it is able to transfer more of its total energy into the first 12 inches of the target, causing higher peak ballistic shock with a wave over 2,000 PSI from a rifle than does the 7mm and the 260. Wow, that is a lot of uh, scientific information there angry sheep, and I appreciate that. I have never quite heard this hydrostatic shock theory explained like that, but it makes a lot of sense, of course, thinking of incompressible water, and you're displacing water with that bullet and its energy, and that water then get compresses inside of the animal and should do some damage. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it, and a lot of people haven't seen it. This is an argument that's been going on for decades. Hydrostatic shock was poo-pooed when Roy Weatherby really started championing it way back in the 50s. Um, and it's still a point that really can't be proven. And I've kind of seen it work, but more often than not, not seen it work. And I have never seen it work with a 308. Generally, hydrostatic shock is said to work best with high velocity bullets. And one of the most famous ones was Roy's favorite, the 257 Weatherby Magnum. Now, there's a tiny, lightweight little bullet, but it's going really, really fast. And he claimed that almost everything was lights out. And that applied to some degree to the 25-06 or any of the other really high-velocity, lighter bulleted cartridges throughout the last half of the 20th century. Um, but it, it was inconsistent, to say the least. I've seen it with a 6-millimeter, shot a deer once right in the chest, shouldn't have been anything incapacitating other than hemorrhaging eventually. And... Down it went instantly. Wow, hydrostatic shock. But then pretty much every other time I did the same thing, put the bullet in the same place with that 243 or 6 millimeter, I didn't get it. So every once in a while it'll happen, other times not. So I just don't think, well, here's what I think is happening. Even if you do have this hydraulic pressure wave, I think the tissues themselves are elastic enough to absorb it and not be damaged and torn. Um, including the, the, the central nervous system. Now, I've seen a lot of animals struck real close to the spinal column and they're down like that, lights out, neck shots, uh, high shoulder shots that don't get into the lungs and cause hemorrhaging. 
But then the animal recovers and runs off or attempts to. And I've seen it time and time again. Once even with a shot to the head that just missed the brain, just under the brain pan, knocked that deer down instantly. Within a minute, it was up again. Pretty incapacitated, dizzy, wobbling, and everything else. And quickly finished off again. But boy, if there was ever hydrostatic shock that should have terminated it from the central nervous system, that would have been close enough, I would think. So not sure I'm buying into it, but I sure like the way you're thinking about all this stuff, Angry. Thanks for throwing that out there. Anybody else got some comments on hydrostatic shock, additional information, how it might you might explain how it works? We'd love to hear it because plenty of people say it does work. They've seen it, but it's just not consistent enough, and I just don't see the evidence. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, Mark, what is the difference between the 25 Middlestead and the 22 Creedmoor. Well, the 22 Creedmoor, guys, is a, a brand new SAMI-approved cartridge coming out from Hornady. It's the 6.5 Creedmoor, neck down to the 6 Creedmoor, neck down to the 22 Creedmoor. And gosh, the thing got started about 10 years ago. Um, Horizon Firearms out of Texas was really championing this thing. A lot of guys were just custom building rifles and building it as a wildcat. And they finally legitimized it just this year. So it's an exciting new cartridge, but this guy must know about it already. And he also knows about these 25 Middlestead, but it's not a 25 Middlestead. It's a 22. must have been a typo. So I wrote him back, hey, Mark, I assume that you mean the 22 Middlestead, which is the 243 Winchester neck down to take the 224 bullet. It's the same as the 22 Creedmoor, which is the 6 millimeter Creedmoor neck down. About four, maybe eight grains more powder will fit in that Middlestead because it's a longer case. So with 75 to 80 grain bullets, it's going to perhaps be 300 feet per second faster than the 22 Creedmoor. But it's going to uh, burn out barrel throats faster because of all that powder. Uh, so with either one of them, you're going to need a one and eight inch twist barrel to stabilize those heavier, longer, longer's the key, 75 to 80 grain bullets. Now, the 22 Creedmoor is going to be easier for you to find, both in factory rifles that are chambered for it and in ammunition. The uh, Middlestead is still a wildcat, probably always will be. It's been around, gosh, probably since the 1950s, shortly after the 243 came out, and nobody's seen fit to make it a SAMI-approved cartridge. So you're going to have to stick with wildcatting to run that one, whereas uh, Creedmoor, we're going to be available over the counter. So the uh, 22 Creedmoor, by the way, is, or the Middlestead, the 22 Middlestead is pretty similar to the 22 Cheetah, which was uh, built, I think, in the late 70s, the 80s, by necking down the 308 case to 22. So either way, uh, with this 22 Creedmoor, you're going to get about 3,300 feet per second with an 80-grain bullet. You think about that, that, that's a little faster even than the 243 Winchester with an 80-grain bullet. About the same, but the 22 bullet, because it's narrower, it's going to have a higher sectional density for more penetration, and it's going to have a higher ballistics coefficient because it's longer for that much weight. So some advantages there. Um, yeah, 
good good option there. Either one of them is going to work. A lot of guys love that that Middlestead Wildcat, but it's just not as convenient. All right, so those good ones there, guys. Um, let's see what some folks have here on the computer to surprise me. I can pull it up. Here's someone from New York, Blair. Blair says, my 12-year-old uh, grandson is going whitetail deer hunting for the first time this year. In your opinion, which would be better for him, a 35 caliber lever action or 243 bolt action? I'm leaning toward the 243. Thanks for your time. Well, Blair, I'm leaning with you. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I had a choice between buying a 3030 Winchester lever action and a 243 bolt action Winchester. And I went for the 3030 because I was familiar with it. I'd watched all the Westerns and I thought it was really cool. And I had never heard of a 243 before. It was still a fairly new cartridge at the time, and it just looked too small to me to be effective. But I was wrong. <laughs> the 243, of course, has been proven again and again to be a great deer cartridge. And it's a mild recoiler, and I would recommend it for those reasons. Plus, generally in a bolt-action rifle, you're going to get a little more accuracy or at least have the potential to tweak that rifle to be more accurate. Uh, and I think it's going to be a little bit lighter weight, depending on which rifle you get. But generally, you're looking at a 35 caliber and a lever action. You probably have a 35 Remington, uh, which is fairly old, and you don't get a lot of ammunition choices in it. I'd say it's a 150-yard gun, whereas that 243, if he ever wants to, he could stretch it out to 300 yards. So a little bit less recoil in it as well, I think. Uh, the 35 is usually shooting a 200-grain bullet. 243, you've got 100 grain. So, yeah, I go with the 243. I think you'll do well with it. All right, Jordan from Austin, Texas. Ron, first of all, I want to thank you for your time and effort that you put into your videos. My father and I love watching your videos together. Well, great. I'm glad to hear that. Say hi to your dad for me. Now, the second thing is I commented on a video a long time ago, and I told you about this 270 WSM rifle that I was going to build, 26-inch barrel with 5R rifling. If I remember correctly, you said something like, that sounds like a great idea. So thank you for your encouragement. Oh, you're welcome. Now, my question is, on your latest video about the fast twist rifling on the 270 Winchester, you mentioned that barrels will deform the projectile that we use so that it won't have necessarily the same ballistics coefficient number that it would have had before you loaded it. Are you, you are correct on that. Oh, you must have done some backup research on me there, Jordan. <laughs> but that's generally the case. Not always, but generally. However, I was wondering, wouldn't that lean to more of a benefit towards using a 5R style rifling barrel, since they claim that it doesn't deform bullets as much as your standard barrels? From what I understand, you can potentially get more velocity out of a 5R rifling barrel versus your traditional 6R rifling too. So what's your uh, take on this? What do you know about it? Well, I don't know that much about the differences, Jordan. Over the years, there have been so many different types of rifling out there, and they herald them as the latest and greatest, but it really never seems to change anything all that much. But right now, the consensus does seem to be going toward that 5R rifling system being the best because your lands and grooves are looking at each other, they're offset so that your bullet doesn't get didn't get mashed as much or squeezed as much, I guess would be the answer. Plus, the edges of the rifling going down into the groove are not hard right angles, so you're not cutting into the jacket of your bullet as much. It's, it's more rounded there and or at the bottom, I forgot which, but that's kind of what gives you that benefit. So there's a little bit less engraving pressure there and probably doesn't 
disrupt your bullet as much. But I think it's important to note that BC changes barrel to barrel for another reason, at least one more, which is how precisely does your barrel spin your bullet to balance it, spin balanced bullet, gyroscopic balance. Some barrels will put a little more yaw or nodding into the tip of that bullet, and that exposes more of its nose to air drag, and that reduces your BC. And this can change with distance as well and velocity. So there are a lot of other things going on out there. As a general rule, you really don't need to worry about it, especially at hunting distances, maybe for target shooting at a thousand yards and crazy things like that. These tiny little differences in BC could make a difference. But for hunting, I just haven't seen it be an issue. Okay, good question though. Let's get to Drew in Nebraska. Oh, I love Nebraska, especially the sand hills of western Nebraska. It's just like a, a grassland wilderness out in that country, even though it's been settled and ranched for ages and ages now. It just has this big, empty, marvelous feel to it. And there's wonderful grasslands and wildflowers everywhere. I just love it out there, except for the sandburrs. Ouch. <laughs> Wear good boots and try not to kneel. Let's see what Drew from Nebraska has to say. I have been corresponding through Facebook Messenger with Ron Spomer Outdoors' Facebook page, and they say I have won a rifle, and all I have to do is pay shipping. Can you tell me if this is legit or a scam? Well, it's legit for taking your money via their scam. So, yeah, it's a scam. And this goes on and on, day after day, 24-7. They never let up. People are always out there to try to get your money. And the way they do it is to say you've won a prize. Just send them some money for shipping and handling. And they'll keep your money and you won't get a prize. Don't respond to those scams, please. I put a warning up um, on Facebook about this happening. But still, a lot of people don't see that. Um, just if anybody promises you that you want something free from Ron Spomer Outdoors, we're not giving anything free away because of this scam stuff. Even if I wanted to give you something, then I set myself up for more scammers coming in and taking your money. So I don't want you to get you confused. Don't lose your money. Just ignore all that freebie stuff. All right. Oh boy, we're going to New South Wales, Australia. Harrison. Good day, Mr. Spomer. I can almost hear his accent. Love it. Recently, I have purchased an old Lee Enfield number four Mark I rifle chambered for a 30325, which is essentially a 303 British neck down to take the 25 caliber bullet. It was extremely common here in Australia in days gone by. As far as I'm aware, the 30325 is an Australian cartridge, along with some other variants, such as 22 and 27 versions of the 303. However, I'm pretty sure these are not SAMI-tested cartridges. But in Australia, we have a powder manufacturer called ADI, world-class powders and ammo, and they list some maximum charge loads for these cases. But apparently, they've been lowered because of the high use of these cartridges in old number one Lee Enfield rifles with weaker actions. So my question is, when I'm reloading, how, does I, how do I tell when the pressures are getting too high? Because I've done some reading and people load that 30325 the same as a 257 Roberts, but these numbers seem to be a bit high considering. I currently load, well, I don't want to tell you all what he's loading because this always brings up the possibility of a kaboof, something screwing up. So, Harrison, I, you know, I'm afraid you're going to have to talk to some locals and especially your powder company, ADI, about this. I am not that familiar with these rifles. Um, 
I would guess that if you are loading it for a more modern Enfield number four Mark I rifle that is strong enough, you probably don't need to reduce your loads to what they're recommending for the older, weaker rifles. But gosh, I think with any of these old rifles, you might want to have a gunsmith check it over for any cracks or any signs of weakening in the receiver and the action and the bolt lugs and all the rest of it. So I really don't want to give you advice on go ahead and push your pressures up. I just don't think that is wise. I think you want to be cautious and get things right so you don't ruin your rifle and especially your fingers or your eye. Now, good luck with that. Let me, let me know how it works out. But, you know, I think with all of these older rifles and military rifles and whatnot, that people find and they want to play around with, I would say really be cautious on this. You know, in this day and age, there are enough rifles and choices and ammunition out there that I don't think too many of us need to kind of get by with an old military rifle. And if we do want to play with it just for nostalgia or the fun of figuring it out, keep your pressures down to safe levels. If you really want to crank out a cartridge, buy something modern and be safe. All right, let's go back here to the States for a Missouri man called Trent. I've watched numerous episodes of your show and benefited greatly from your knowledge and experience. Thank you. Well, thank you, Trent. I'm glad I, I helped you out with some of this stuff. And an area that I have not seen you address is shotgun ammo. My specific question pertains to copper versus lead core Sabo slugs. For example, Barnes Vortex expanders versus Remington Accutip. I'm able to break down the ballistics reports, but I have not found any information on the minimum terminal velocity when using copper slugs. In your video, 28 Years Hunting with Barnes X Bullets, you reported a minimum impact velocity of 800 feet per second and suggested 2,000 feet per second <laughs> might be better. But Barnes Vortex Expander advertises only 1,500 feet per second from the get-go. Must mean it's velocity, uh, muzzle velocity. So clearly something less than 800 foot pounds of pressure must work in this context. Numerous searches uh, have yielded nothing. And I was hoping you might have some insight. Yeah, I think I do, Trent. Um, well, I think you're worrying needlessly because my article was about rifle cartridges. And most 30 6 275s, all of them, for centerfire rifles, most of those TTSX and TSX bullets are rated to be expanding adequately down to about 1,800 feet per second much below that, and they just don't open the nose quite enough. You get a little bit, but not enough. That doesn't necessarily pertain to shotgun slugs because Barnes knows a 12-gauge is going to be shooting at slug at maybe 1,300 feet per second up to maybe 1,500 feet per second. So they have to build it to expand at those expected velocities. So they're putting a larger nose cavity in the, in the front of them, and they're going to open up just fine. So don't worry about it. They've got it covered. Um, I used so, some of those when they first came out. We were uh, bear hunting up in Canada, a bunch of us guys, and they worked really well. There's no problem opening those things up. So I think you're going to be fine there. All right. Uh, now we're going to jump up to Canada. <laughs> Speaking of bear hunting in Canada, here's Christopher from British Columbia. Ron, can you elaborate on the use for a 357 rifle cartridge for mule deer and whitetail? I would love to know what bullet weights and velocity you recommend. What can you comment on? Well, Chris, I have not hunted deer with the 357 Magnum, but a lot of guys do. Mostly, I think, with revolvers, six-inch barrels. And your velocity with 158-grain bullet is going to be around probably 1,300 feet per second. And they say they work really well. They kill deer just fine, out to about 100 yards, preferably 50 to 75. Well, with a rifle, you're probably looking at an 18-inch barrel. 
you're going to increase your velocity probably 300 feet per second. So that's going to give you a lot more energy, a lot more reach. So I would just guesstimate that you're probably going to get 1,700 feet per second out of that 158 grain bullet. And then you're going to be able to reach probably to 200 yards. If you're in your drop tables, you might have enough energy to be effective to 200. Certainly 150, I would think. But I would want you to do some good research. You need to know the ballistics coefficient of your bullet and its weight and your actual muzzle velocity. Then you get on a ballistic calculator and you can figure it all out and you will know your drops, your deflections in the wind, which can be a big issue with that short stubby bullet, and how much energy you're going to retain downrange. And they always say, well, for deer, you ought to have a thousand foot-pounds of energy in your bullet when you strike him. I don't think that's absolute, certainly not with a heavier bullet that's going to penetrate pretty well, but it's worth using as a benchmark anyway. Get down to around 800 and you might start to get a little bit nervous. That's enough. You're out there far enough on it. So do some research on that. But I think that's about right, about what you can expect. So good luck with that. Um, I don't know that if I were up in British Columbia, I would choose a 357 rifle cartridge. If I had some options, I think I'd go with more of a high energy centerfire cartridge from a normal rifle, like a 308 Winchester or anything like that. But Hey, suit yourself. That's the wonderful thing about this whole game is we all get to make our choices and endure them or enjoy them. Okay, let's see. We're going to come back down here and all the way down to Texas. AJ, Ron, thanks for your great efforts. I'm thinking about building a custom rifle in 375 H&H with a high twist rate, one in eight. I wonder why. I want to stabilize a high grain long bullet, 300 to 450 grains. For example, a cutting edge laser. Ooh. The idea is to cut the rifle build and the ammo cost to less than half of the cost of building a 375 Shytac rifle and ammo. Ooh, yeah. Fill the gap between the 338 Lapua and the Shytac and still be able to kill a big game animal over a thousand yards. Not that any of us would want to do that intentionally, but just in case. Ooh. And I want to use the father of all magnums, the 375 H8s. So, do these ballistics exist? What are your thoughts? Thanks for you and your team and your great work. Well, thanks, AJ. I don't know. I think I'm going to discourage you on this one. And here's why. Uh, the 375 H8s, I just don't think has enough powder capacity to take good advantage of a bullet heavier than 300 grains. If you stick with 300, you might be all right. But I think you're kind of confusing a military round and performance with hunting. The military likes that 375 shy tack for reaching way out there and carrying plenty of energy for disabling, I think, machinery like engine blocks and different things, more so than using it against the enemy soldiers, although they may need to shoot through walls or brick or something too. Um, but boy, that's a lot different than what we're trying to do when we're hunting. I just don't think you need that kind of long-range performance out of that big of a bullet. Plenty of us take our big game animals with 300 magnums and 7 magnums or 338 magnums. So I don't know. But hey, again, as I always say, it's free country and we get to make our choices. And if you really think this is something you need, you can certainly try it. But I don't have any information on the kind of loads you would have to build and uh, hand loads and all the rest of it. It just sounds like a project that's kind of uh, something of that, a real rifle loony 
for instance, would want to do uh, just for the fun of it, find out what's going to happen. So, hey, if that uh, rings your chimes, I'd say go for it. But it doesn't sound very pragmatic to me. All right. Uh, oh, that looks like it. So how long have we been running here? Well, we've been pushing the envelope a little bit here. So now it's time for something special. And that sound means it's time for our question of the week winner. And the winner this week is Angry Sheep for his interesting well, not a question so much as an explanation of hydrostatic shock. Uh, I'm still not convinced it's the good answer, but boy, it was one of the more detailed and interesting I have ever heard. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Hey, this is Ron Spomer. Looking forward to visiting with you guys again in our next podcast. In the meantime, hunt honest and shoot straight. <laughs>